Have you been zombified by the scheme? What is the scheme? The scheme, you know, this like whole world that we live in where we, you know, come into work and buy stuff and then go home and then sleep not enough and then get Wait, up to go to work. Is this what the scheme work. is? What is the, I thought the scheme was different. At the scheme, it's like uh, the, our transactional way of being, right? Like Where like we have to be a part of the world in order to survive. And like if I, if I want to leave and just go do my own thing, I can't anymore. Something like that. <sighs> I think so. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I mean, and, and I, I've tried, right? I've tried going to live like the... Alexander Supertramp life out in the wilds. Who's uh, Alexander Supertramp? He's the guy from, um, that wasn't his real name, but he's the guy from Into the Wild. Oh, uh, who right. Who goes and lives in Alaska. Yeah. And so, um, it's like the modern day Thoreau. Yeah. Except yeah. Thoreau didn't actually like live by himself in a cabin in the woods. He would go to, over to his friend's house and eat dinner all the time. I thought it was his mom. He'd go oh. back home to do his laundry. Probably. Like, I think it was literally I... he would bring his laundry back home and his mom <laughs> would do it for him. So, um, <laughs> so you know, he was also zombified by the scheme, right? Of, so, so the scheme, I guess, that we're talking about today is we have to be integrated with society in order to survive, right? Right, but it's not just integrated with society. It's also that we have to operate in a sort of transactional way when it comes to how we get our energy and our materials and our information that we're like paying for it in a transaction that can kind of be just broken down to like, I give you this, you give me that. And we don't really have relationships that are underlying it. Right. That's true. But I'm just, I'm paying for gas. I don't know who's bringing the gas yeah. for my car. I don't know who made the car. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, and then and then we're also talking about the scheme as like the, you know, the energy scheme that we're all in because our guest Gary Dirks is an expert in the energy system. He um, was super high up in um, BP and like he knows the energy system inside and out and is basically saying, hey, we need to move away from fossil fuels, even though he is a like self-proclaimed oil man or he used right. to be. Yes. Right. So yes. it's so. Uh, it's a pretty interesting episode. Yeah. So, so, yeah. So we're talking today about can we, how do we do this? Right. I think this is the thing we've all thought about, talked about, even people who haven't tried to move out to Alaska to live in a bus, you know, um, we've talked about how can we get off of fossil fuels? Cause we're, you know, we're we're heating up the world, and we're I don't we we didn't ask him today how soon we'd run out of fossil fuels, but I guess at some point we would run out, right? And so yeah, well, I mean, the subtext of the whole episode is kind of the energy apocalypse. Yeah, yeah. Well, so and sometimes it's just the text I think of the episode, right? <laughs> um, like true. what happens when the because if the if the if the grid shuts down. We we die within two weeks, I guess, is the idea here in Arizona. <laughs> Most of us, yeah. probably. Oh, not you. You got, you got high know. hopes. I don't know. You got and your I mason get, jars? I got my mason jars filled with, you know, lentils. So. <laughs> All right. I'll give you. You got three weeks. So. <laughs> uh, but it's this is, this is a really fascinating episode. And I think uh, Gary's a fantastic guest. And also, we go into these sort of answers of questions of, okay, how can we start to move away from this sort of, I have to be using 
fossil fuels all the time. He has actual practical solutions because I think my whole life I've always heard we gotta we gotta use less, we gotta use less, and I'm like, well, but I like I like energy, <laughs> you know. And he talks about some yeah. really interesting ways that we can actually perhaps help the grid and ha- in a major way, like have a serious impact. It sounds like while still yeah. actually getting to like use our nintendos and things like that right, right. just so, at noon instead at of noon for exactly one 7 hour PM. yes yeah. so <laughs> well, and we also talk about um recreational survivalism that's true which i'm going to use that phrase all the time now because like really like yeah i do some survivalist kind of stuff but it's recreational i guess that's true i guess that's yeah. what i've become too i'm a yeah. recreational survivalist yeah. so yeah yeah definitely. So, so join us in recreational survivalism get your mason jars bring your power tools to your you know to your land, land. yes <laughs> in your gas guzzling old automobile so <laughs> or your electric car um so uh, but uh, yeah. yeah so uh there, there are many ways there are so many what's ways your what's it. your favorite part of today's episode um my favorite part of today's episode is where we, we kind of like really break it down in terms of like the transactional way of being versus the relational way of uh-huh. being. And, you know, to have Gary, who, you know, spent decades of his life like in the oil industry, be talking about how we need to move from a transactional way of being to a relational way of being like to me, that was just super powerful. Yeah, that is really good. Yeah. So I just liked when he told me when to turn on my appliances. So <laughs> to, to each their own. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, let's hear from this week's fresh brain, Gary Dirks. I know it's crazy, but it seems so logical. Try to fight it, but it's something psychological with you. Makes me act the way I do. I'm not trying to. Welcome to Zombified. It's so amazing to have you here. Well, it's great to be here. I've been uh, looking forward to getting a chance to come in and have a chat with you for a while. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, and the whole topic of zombification and how it relates to energy and how like we have been zombified by like ideas about how the world can work. I- I've been wanting to have you on this podcast for like more than a year. So <laughs> I'm so glad that we were able to set this up. Well, I'm looking forward to it. These are These are fun things to do. Absolutely. Um, Can you introduce yourself in your own words for us? I would be happy to. So my name is Gary Dirks. I'm a senior director of the Global Futures Lab here at ASU, and I also lead the Lightworks Initiative. I've been here since 2009. Lightworks, by the way, is energy. And as the uh, light would signal, it's mostly to do with solar energy and energy from light. Prior to coming to ASU, I was uh, a very senior executive with British Petroleum. Mm. I was president of BP Asia Pacific and president of BP China and spent 34 years working for BP, the last 14 living in China. Wow. So I'm what they des- describe in the trade as a expat. Uh-huh. <laughs> what what qualifies as an expat? How long do you have to? Well, it's usually somebody that, that spends more than a couple of years once mm. out. Um, and I, I left the United States in 1992 and went to live first in uh, Britain, in London. And then I went from there to 
Belgium and lived in near and worked near uh, Brussels. And then I went uh, in 1995 to um, China and I lived in mostly Beijing, very briefly in Shanghai, but mostly in Beijing for about 14 years, 13 and, a, 13 and some change. Mm-hmm. So is the energy situation really different there compared to in the U.S. or was it kind of the same thing? Well, at the at, a, at the core of it, it was it was pretty much the same. Fossil fuels. Um, China was somewhat more reliant on coal uh, than the U.S. was because the U.S. has a much more robust supply of hydrocarbons. Mm. Um, but China, like everybody else, including the United States, is got to deal with the climate challenge. You know, we got right. too much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Um, and in that regard, China is a little bit of a conundrum for most people because on the one hand, they continue to build coal plants and lots of them. On the other hand, they've deployed more wind and solar than any other country in the world. And Mm -hmm. they are leaders in both solar and wind technology. Wow. So, um, yeah, they're facing more or less the same issues, but coming at it from a rather different perspective. Yeah. Certainly a different starting point. Mm-hmm. Well, and if we break it down, I mean, at its core, energy is something that, I mean, we all need as modern humans. I mean, you could say maybe we don't need it, but even if you're going to go and live off the grid, you're probably going to have like, a, you know, some sort of I, solar or I've you're going to have... I, I, yeah, I, you've so tried? Having like with... Because yeah. I, have, I have land up near Kingman where I was like, I'm going to go yeah. up with an axe and like and a saw and I'm going to like make a cabin and after like two days I was like I'm going to come back with some power tools <laughs> and I'm going to make and, and then it's like each time I'm like I'm going to come back with a big battery like it's like you really it's, it's tough it's really tough so well you know there's something I think that's important that lurks around in there it's a little bit aside from the main point of this conversation but um, you know human beings are social creatures we cannot live outside of this scheme that we have created (laughs) we are in it we probably evolved inside of it and you can't get away from it because even even when you were going to go primitive you took an axe and a saw I'm reasonably confident you didn't mine the ore. I did not. No. <laughs> I mean, or I had big it. dreams where I was like, well, maybe eventually I could just do this. I could, but no, not at all. And it's, yeah. Um, also with, with the thing you were saying about the people, I was also like, I got to bring more people. Like, and, but yeah, and, and the batter, everything that I'm bringing and the vehicle, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't hike out there. I drove a car. Absolutely. There, so. It's really, really hard so, to yeah. escape the fact that we're inside of this big cooperative scheme. And it's, and it's amazing scheme. You know, when I, and I will come back to the energy point here. <laughs> when I talk to people about it, I like to pull out a pen. Here you go. This was standard fare for working in BP. It's a sort of the it's a nice looking the, pen. Well, it's the Mont Blanc. Yeah. Look, look, <laughs> stick. Yeah. No advertisement there. Um, <laughs> how does it come to be that I have this? And what all went into it? And how many decisions were made along the way? And I'm sure that you can easily come up with hundreds of thousands of decisions were made that came up in order for that pen to happen to be in Heathrow Airport on the day that I decided I wanted to buy one of those pens. Well, that's the scheme and how amazing it is. And yes, uh, to your 
point about energy. I'm, I'm a big fan of um, a faculty member of ours who's now emeritus, um, Sander van der Leeuw, who you may have heard of. Um, he wrote a book where he basically says, you know, it's, it's energy, it's raw materials, and it's information that flows through. This is what keeps entropy at the door, out of the door. Um, it takes a lot of energy to get anything as sophisticated as we've got here, mm-hmm. operating and keeping it operating. Keeping those zombies at bay on the other side of the door. <laughs> you got it. And uh, the the thing that we got to be constantly aware of with respect to the energy part of it is you don't get to have any gaps. They're at least not for the developed world. There what, are do you, what do you mean by that? No. Gaps. Well, so uh, imagine life in Phoenix if you didn't have energy supply for a week. What happens? Well, to begin with, you run out of food or get very close to running out of food. You're going to have a water crisis. If it's the summertime, you're going to have people dying left, right, and center from heat. Um, you can't have a, week, a gap of a week. Mm. Now, in the bigger stream of things, the week doesn't sound like very much. But when it's energy, you don't get to have any of those kind of gaps. Hmm. Do you think it would be possible to have a more resilient system where like gaps were okay or it's just really it's not possible to get from where we are now to to that that i think is is a really interesting and really important question um because without a doubt the scheme that we have evolved co-evolved with the idea that we can have energy that doesn't have any gaps Mm -hmm. so we've created a system that doesn't function well if you get them. Now, do we have to have a system that looks like that? Is it possible that we could find ways to have 8 billion people continuing to survive on this planet and have a energy system? Well, let's start with something simpler that would run only off of solar energy, which means you use very little, if any, energy at night. Mm-hmm. What would it look like to construct something like that? Now, um, at the moment, it would look really, really hard in an industrial society mm-hmm. because we built coal plants, we built natural gas generators, we built refineries and distribution systems that enabled people to live a 24-hour-a-day world, in a 24-hour-a-day mm-hmm. world, and then particularly for our manufacturing or for treating water. Mm-hmm. We built a world where these things are expected that they'll run 24 hours a day. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I feel like there are a lot of people who feel this call for a simpler life. I mean, Dave, you were talking about like going out to your land and like even like the richest people in San Francisco are like, I'm going to get an off-grid cabin and spend my weekends there or go to Burning Man where it's like, you know, everyone is trying to survive in the desert for a week plus. And so people have some sort of craving for more challenge or more autonomy or, or something that's not you know, always just part of this scheme. Well, I think that's right. Now, the, there's two things I would observe about that. One, one is, but then when it really matters, they go out and buy a new cell phone. Um, <laughs> Obviously. <and laughs> that that yeah. introduces a lot of complexity. Um, now, the, the second thing I would say is about complexity. 
One of the things that I'm increasingly concerned about um, is kind of captured in the phrase of competence without comprehension. Hmm. And what I mean by that is most of the world functions because you can compartmentalize elements and tasks in a way that a group of competent people can run that piece. Hmm. And then the next piece will flange up to it. And there's competent people that can run that. And there's just enough information that flows across the, the boundary mm -hmm. so that they can kind of keep on going. Well, what, what I think we're beginning to see is the systems we're building are so complicated. And it's the compartmentalization is so extreme because of the sophistication of the knowledge that's required to run it that more and more of the system, nobody actually knows how it works. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you an example <laughs> of this um, in the energy sector, and that is in, in February of, of 2021, you may recall, um, there were power outages in Texas. Mm -hmm. And at least according to Wikipedia, 500 people died as a result of those power outages and and um, enormous economic loss was resulted from it. Well, at a very critical juncture, one of the things that was happening is rolling blackouts. They were, you're familiar with that, what a rolling blackout is. There was a program in place where big power consumers um, would have their power cut in an emergency and there was a list and people were supposed to know that they were on and the people that were managing that part of the program were supposed to know who it was that could be cut off. Well, as it turns out, one of the things that they did when they really, really, really needed the power was they had a rolling blackout and they rolled it over uh, the natural gas fields. And that turned off the pumps and the compressors. When the line pressure in the gas line fell, it tripped off the power plants. <laughs> now, that is a perfect example of competence without comprehension. As long as they were operating in a parameter space that was usual, in some sense of the word usual, they were fine because mm -hmm. all these interfaces did what they were supposed to do. The minute it was outside... Nobody knows how this system works. Now, why raise that in the context of the, your point about simplification? I didn't think we have to worry about creating a world that is so complicated that it becomes infinitely brittle. Hmm. And, in, and it just won't take shocks. Right. And um, I think we're on the verge of doing that now. Now, hmm. AI is kind of, in some instances, starting to fill some of those gaps. Mm -hmm. um, but okay, yeah. now you've got an even more sophisticated, more complicated yeah. technology. <laughs> and you're saying to yourself, well, that's going to rescue me from the fact that I've made the technology that I've got too complicated. Yeah. Well, there's kind of a fundamental trade-off between resilience and efficiency, right? It's like right. if you're just trying to maximize efficiency, then you're going to compromise some level of resilience. You are. And, and I like to use both re robust and resilient because the interesting thing about the Texas example is it was actually pretty resilient. 
it got knocked out of its normal operating space, uh, but then with a matter of day, day or two, as soon as the weather cleared, it was right back mm-hmm. in it again. So it snapped back, but it wasn't robust at all. The minute it got stressed very much, it broke. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we need to make that distinction. Um, and then you're, the, the bigger point that you're making, you're absolutely right. If you're going to go for just cost – as the driving parameter, you're going to get very brittle systems because yeah. there's no redundancy mm-hmm. and there's no incentive to develop a staff mm-hmm. that knows how the whole system operates. You right. just see that as, why do I need to do that? You do your bit and you do your bit and mm-hmm. I'll do my bit and we're going to be great. Yeah. So, so what is it about this sort of you know scheme that we're all living in? Like, Why does it zombify us? Why do we all participate in it um, without questioning it for the most part? Well, that's, that's a really good question. Um, why do we participate in it? And I would go back to where we were talking about Dave's cabin, and that is, uh, you know, I believe humanity evolved inside of this scheme. Uh, if we look at our last if our last living common ancestor was the chimpanzees, they're social creatures and they live in very tight-knit groups and they cooperate within their troops. So we, we have never not lived inside this scheme. The drive then, in my opinion, to collaborate or cooperate with each other is just part of, Mm-hmm. Well, I hesitate to say DNA, but it probably is yeah, sure. part of our DNA to do that. The, the The question in my mind then is not so much why we do it, because I think we were designed to do it. It's why do we build the structures that we do? You know, one of the I've, – I've pitched up on a new social media platform and started yeah, which, a little bit of – Which one? Well, I've, I've never have been much of a social media guy, but I'm now no longer Twitter, and I'm over on Mastodon. Oh, okay. Oh, cool. Yeah. And when it's, it's recent. We're exper- experimenting mm-hmm. it. But there's, uh, there's some people that have been putting a lot of stuff, publishing a lot of stuff around inequity. Mm-hmm. And one of the points I was raising is, well, why do we create behemoths? How is it that they happen? Because there's a lot of there's a lot on there about the power of corporations and you know corporates doing this and that, um, which in some instances is true. Um, but why do we create those in the first place? Why do we create brontosaurs? Why do we create tyrannosaurs? Uh, why was there the British Empire? Why was there the East India Company? And why don't we not stop that? from happening. And I think this is where the zombification comes in because by and large, if you're not thinking about the whole system and you're kind of thinking about how am I going to get through tomorrow because mm-hmm. that's what's really on my mind. Mm-hmm. The fact that that Amazon is kind of taking over the planet might escape your notice. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Um, and even if your even if your local five and dimes says, "Well, I'm going out of business because I can't compete with the online guys," well, you know, what do you plan on doing next? Mm-hmm. And I think this is this is the zombification, and I think it has a lot to do then with we focus on what matters to us, and there are 
are groups of people who are focusing on creating tyrannosaurs. Mm -hmm. Not that they necessarily set out to do that. Um, what was it that Google said at the outset? Do no oh, evil. Yeah. <laughs> don't be evil, I think might have been it. <laughs> yeah, don't be evil. Something, something having to do with we're, gonna, we're the good guys. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'm not suggesting that, that, that they have become evil. On the other hand, boy, they have enabled a lot of stuff. And it hasn't all been good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So can I ask you a question that sort of, because this is a topic we've talked about a fair bit, like corporations mm-hmm. and yeah. One of the questions that I think always comes up is, are people consciously building these behemoths or have we just created environments where these behemoths evolve because they survive the best, you know? Well, I, I like that line of thinking because I, I do believe we evolve them. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm not a believer in, I did this myself. You, you can't believe in the scheme and believe that you actually did anything of, of any real big consequences. Even the most remarkable among us right. were, I mean, were connecting, connecting dots here and there. And, and, mm-hmm. it, and it happened to open up a, another area that, that humanity can exploit. So the first thing I think is that it does require a very rich, easily accessible stream, going back to Sonder, of information, materials, and energy. So whatever this new opportunity is, it has to be rich in those elements. And those elements have to be reasonably accessible to to the participants that want to go in and exploit them. Then I... I think, frankly, it's Darwinism kind of takes over. One of the things that you you realize when you do the kind of things that I did is when you deal with the granularity of the world and not just a country but a lot of different countries, um, law and regulation is a very low standard. How do you mean? Uh, you can stay with inside the law and regulation and still do some pretty nasty things. Ah, all right. <laughs> um, so there's got to be a better navigation system and a better North Star than I obey the law. In fact, the first thing that goes through my mind when I hear anyone saying, well, we obeyed the law. Well, okay, so you pick the lowest standard. You can, you can imagine <laughs> in the way, in your, how you're going to judge your behavior. I don't think uh, anybody goes out with the idea, I'm going to build a behemoth, or I think it's, it's a relatively rare that somebody does that. I think um, in these days, it's typically not a somebody, but a group of somebodies. Um, I think they see an opportunity. They see this flow that I'm talking about, and they see how they can divert elements of that flow to something interesting or useful that they can do with it. And they set off on a journey. Let's see what we can do with that. Let's see where it goes. Well, then, you know, if you're Mark Zuckerberg, it, wow, look at where this is going. And the next thing you know, it's bigger. And then you got other people coming along saying, hey, you know, it could be this, it could be that. What do you think? You know, how about, how about some more money? And money, of course, is just, a, is just a, uh, an intermediate form for getting access to energy materials and, and information. Mm-hmm. Um, and the next thing you know, it's, it's blossoming out. And, 
Um, if you happen to hit a space, as Zuckerberg did, did, where there aren't a lot of other players there, you can, you can get really big really, really fast. Now, where it becomes, in my opinion, more problematic is when you start consuming your neighbors. And this is Speaking where... Speaking of zombies. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, you, didn't, you didn't realize that you were small and herbivore and... They have big teeth and, and long mm. claws, and yes, they do. Um, so I think it's more we evolve them. Now, the question in my mind then becomes, well, if our experience with these things is at best checkered, why do we, why do we not investigate ways in which you can constrain? But nobody really does. Um, regulation is insufficient and i mean oftentimes right it's also too slow right there's it's slow and these things are never black and white yeah um there's always an argument you could have on both sides Mm -hmm. and um there's this whole idea right of soft law too right so you know so with new technology is that the the you know pioneers basically get together and decide on what rules they're going to follow in order to, you know, ensure that bad outcomes don't happen because they recognize that there isn't a ability to very quickly create laws I, and regulations. I, I think this is a really important point. And um, in a different context, having more to do, to do with artificial general intelligence, there's a conversation around the idea of instrumental convergence. What is this? What is instrumental? Instrumental convergence is, is the idea that there are certain things that if you, you have broadly common interests, you will converge around a set mm-hmm. of standards or around. So you, do, you don't go out, well, you, you considered doing it, but most people wouldn't go out and consider building a power plant, for example. There's other people that have built power plants, and all i got to do is connect it to it, and I've mm-hmm. got it. So I'm perfectly happy to converge, in my case at my home, with SRP mm-hmm. um, because instrumentally I want the electricity. Sure. And what I can do – more to the point, I want what I can do with the electricity. Right. <laughs> and I don't – I'm happy to do that. Well, I think if you start digging around in – the scheme, you're going to find an awful lot of instrumental convergence where people just said, eh, okay, might not have been exactly the way I would do it. Works for me, though. Mm-hmm. I don't either don't have the money, I don't have the time, I don't have the authority t- mm-hmm. to, to do it myself, so I'm just going to converge on what you've done. And that's not just, that's not just physical infrastructure. People converge around ideas, too. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, cor- have, coordinating is a good way of... Well, constitutions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Constitution is an instrumental convergence. Okay, works for me. It's good enough. Might not have been mm-hmm. what I wrote, would have mm-hmm. written, but it works for me. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm thinking about... Because talking about litigation and things, and you've talked about sort of competence versus comprehension. How do we litigate these things that most of us don't comprehend? You know, like, because even thinking about your, like... So I do, you know, at home I do go through SRP, but even when I was trying to live off the grid, I buy batteries that I don't know where they come from or how they're made, right? And so if someone were to be like, are those made in a way that's environmentally friendly? I'm like, I don't know, you know? Um, and so yeah. how do we... Well, this is a, this 
is a is a problem um, because it it introduces two things that I think are really hard, and they both relate to the energy system. One is this idea of life cycle and and where do these things come from and where are they going to go um i've got that covered i've got a drawer in my house where i just put (laughs) all my old batteries that's right (laughs) well a a class that i co-taught this past semester we it was on the basics of energy and one of the things we let the students do is go out and read up on a subject they were interested in and come in and talk to us about it and one of the one of the young guys in the class um, did electronics recycling. Mm -hmm. And as he was presenting, I was sort of smugly thinking, well, you know, I go through ASU or I go, there's a, there's a shop not very far away. So then he starts to talk about a shop and he said, I started asking them, what did they do with it? And he said, I didn't get a very good answer, but I think they take him to the landfill. Actually. <gasps> oh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> what? Or most of them. And wow. What? Yeah. Well, that, you know, it's not clear to me where they're going to be recycled. Um, so, yeah, and we've got this problem big time with renewable energy. That um, I mean, it's extractive big time renewable energy. Those kinds of things can just make us so jaded too, right? It's like, oh, like how do we actually do the things that we want to be doing if the system isn't set up from beginning to end in the way that we think it is? Well, and it's not. Uh, it's just fundamentally it's not. And, and don't get me wrong. I'm a huge believer that we have to convert to renewable energy and especially solar and wind. But at the moment, the majority of windmill blades that are, are – past their service life, end up in landfills. Mm. Um, in, in particular, in Wyoming, there's a strip hmm. mine where they've converted into a windmill blade huh. landfill. Graveyard. <laughs> now, at least in the case of windmill blades, the, huh. the, the materials are pretty stable, so it's unlikely to create a lot of environmental difficulties down the road. Mm. But still, that's not the way you want it to, to end right. for these kinds of materials. Right, right. So there's there's the whole question of the life cycle, but then the the sheer scale of it. I mean, we we are extracting enormous amounts of copper. We're extracting enormous amounts of things like lithium and mm-hmm. cobalt, and mm-hmm. just the ability to do that in a way that you can feel good about is non-trivial. Yeah. You know? Well, so what does the energy transition look like? I mean, I know you're a big advocate for like we need right. to transition like what what what's the ideal and what's realistic well i i think um with all deliberate haste with the emphasis on haste and not deliberate we we've got to transform this energy system away from carbon dioxide emitting um processes so that's basically no more fossil fuels now um, we've got to be careful of gaps um, for reasons we talked about. So the new system has to be able to do qualitatively more or less the same kinds of things that the old system did. And when I say qualitatively, um, you know, I just, for part of a proposal to help some of the people that I was working with think about it, um, wrote, a short note that I call dancing with ducks. 
And there's a section in there about learning to speak duck. <laughs> and <laughs> so keep going. So, <laughs> so there's something in in solar energy circles, especially in the Southwest, where we have a lot of solar energy, called the duck curve. And the way you get the duck curve is you take the demand for electricity during a 24-hour time period, and you subtract from that the amount of solar energy that was dispatched onto the grid. Now, the demand curve, of course, has got some blips in it. There's a morning blip, and then there's kind of a, a more or less steady day, daytime consumption of electricity. There's, then there's quite a big ramp at the end of the day when people are going home, and then it peels off, and overnight it falls to a lower level. Well, if you subtract the solar curve from it, that's got this whopping big hump right in the middle of the day. You know, noon mm -hmm. is when the solar panels are really churning out electricity. So if you subtract those two, what you end up with is this big, big belly of the duck just gets pulled way down because of all that solar that's coming on. So you end up with a curve that looks like it's got a duck's tail and then a duck's belly and then it got a big duck's mm -hmm. head on it, the neck and the head, and then off onto the end of the bill, and then you repeat the cycle. So you got to deal with that belly and you got to deal with the, the massive ramp that occurs late in the afternoon where you mm -hmm. go from from the solar panels are now churning out full blast to they're not churning out much of all and people are demanding more so you get this really big ramp how do you deal with that oh uh, of course storage is the immediate let's let's mm -hmm. put storage in pl in place and storage is a good idea but um you know batteries are getting better they need to get even better mm -hmm. if we're going to do longer term storage and deal with the totality of the duck but people need to get it into their mind you know i'm going to run my swimming pool pumps at noon mm. if i have a swimming pool Mm -hmm. Wait, at I noon? Mine. Because, because that's when the solar power starts. That's going? when the solar power. Basically, mm -hmm. think about this. So, rather than get ter terribly wrapped up in the duck, because there, sure. is, there are sure. some technical things about that. Let's just imagine that our supply is not 24 hours a day. It's concentrated between sunrise and sunset with a big hump in the middle. That's when you've got to use energy. That's when your society needs to be focusing mm -hmm. its attention on what can I do to use that energy then? Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting. What can I pull from any other time of the day into that window? Yeah. I mean, it seems like if you were like living, you know, off grid and you had your solar, like, you know, and you had a battery, but maybe it wasn't great, like you would naturally you do that. do that, right? That's exactly what you do. But there's so many layers in between right. our consumption and the supply and the constraints on the supply that, you know, there isn't a impetus to, to make those changes. There isn't, and it creeps up on you. So we're speaking into microphones that are held up by, by a steel or an aluminum mm -hmm. frame. Oh, sure. Um, the boys that run those plants that either make steel or aluminum want to run 24 hours a day. They don't want to run when the sun is shining. Well, they do want to run when the sun is shining, but, but they want to run every, every, all yeah. the rest of the time yeah. too. So um, they want energy. Those are both really high energy consuming industries. They want energy 24 hours a day. So what do we do about them? Do they have to learn to live in a shorter, shorter daily window or do we have to figure out some way else to do it? Now, 
the reason I'm starting here is because I think the key to solving our transformation of this energy system, key number one, increase the demand for renewable energy. The more people use renewable energy, the less fossil energy they need to use. Okay? Mm -hmm. So do everything you can think of to pull energy consumption into the middle of the day. What you can't consume, figure out a way to store it. All right? Or move it. So if, for example, when our solar panels are cranking out and the electricity is worth virtually nothing, like... Well, it's a little bit hazy today, but if this were a bright, sunny day in the wintertime, nobody wants these electrons in the Southwest. <laughs> we don't need them. Mm -hmm. Then they sell dirt cheap. Well, as it turns out, the North Northeast may have some interest in those electrons. So moving it is also an option. Move it to some part of the country. or And we can, we can do that without losing... Well, you lose, you lose but you're going to lose. You're going to lose pretty much. And if you don't use it right away, you're going to lose pretty much anyway. Okay, so okay. so what percentage of it do you lose if you don't use it right away? Well, it depends on on how you're going to store it. If uh -huh. you're if you're going to move it by transmission, you can okay. figure 20, 30 percent, depending on how far you, you're you lose. Send. Twenty, thirty percent. Yeah. Oh, that's not on, that bad. Depending so. on how far you go with it. Yeah. Okay. Well, these things are they are not catastrophic because you wouldn't do it if it was yeah. really, yeah, really, yeah. really mm -hmm. bad. So. But um, but there's going to be losses, uh -huh. no matter how you go about it. Batteries are actually not a bad way. Batteries, you can charge them and discharge them pretty efficient, mm -hmm. pretty efficiently. Mm -hmm. So the starting point for the transformation, back to your question, is find another way to, to use that energy. Use mm -hmm. it when you got it. And the same is true for the people that are highly reliant on mm -hmm. wind energy. Figure out a way to use it when you got it. Mm -hmm. The second... Um, is to recognize that for the primary energy supply, and solar would be a primary energy supply, crude oil would be a primary energy supply. For primary energy supply, the, um, the availability is far more distributed for renewable energy than it ever was for fossil fuels. Oh. Fossil mm -hmm. fuels depend on really big concentrations of big coal mines, big oil fields, moving things by ships and pipelines and all of these sorts of things. So what that means in practice is you can build up a, d a decent, reliable system much more locally. Mm than you ever could with these fossil fuels. Now that's, that's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, that means Arizona, the city of Phoenix, the city of Tempe, Arizona State University, can make decisions about its energy provision. And that's a good yeah. thing. The other edge of that sword is, and it would be a really good thing if these people making these decisions were both competent and comprehended what yeah. it was they were building. And since typically we haven't had to do a lot of that, that means there's a fair bit of capacity building that mm -hmm. has to go on in order for people to get it in, in, into their minds that we can imagine a very different system mm -hmm. um, and that that system uh, can be very much more local. Now, that's not to say that it doesn't get connected to the rest of the system in the case of electricity because you, you will – 
but you can build the, the core of it very locally. Yeah, it strikes me that what you're kind of talking about is going from a you know modular structure that's based on sort of tasks in a really large system to maybe a modular structure that's more based um, in local areas that could then be connected to other areas in a way that can maybe increase the resilience. So you're, you're sort of doing it all in these modules um, on a smaller scale. That's exactly right, uh, Athena. And, and in terms of scale economies, you're going from economies of scale that are based on building really big machines. You know, the, these days a refinery, you wouldn't build a refinery that's much smaller than a million barrels a day to getting economies of scale because I'm going to build a lot of solar panels and I'm going to be really efficient at building a lot of solar panels. So you get the repetition economies that go along with that. Mm -hmm. Now, what I think we need to be really careful about in the transformation, and here comes the oil man in me, <laughs> putting pressure on supply of hydrocarbon as a way of reducing emissions is a really bad idea. Wait, as what do you mean? Like Telling oil companies to stop producing oil is a really bad idea. Okay. Oil and gas. And there's a very simple reason for that. And that is when you put pressure on supply and you don't cut demand, then all you're going to do is drive up prices and create shortages. When you drive up prices and create shortages, you always – not sometimes, you always create social unrest. It's worthwhile to observe that before Putin sent his troops to Ukraine, immediately before he sent them to the Ukraine, he sent them to Kazakhstan. And the reason he sent them to Kazakhstan is because there were shortage problems in hydrocarbon there, and the government raised prices, and they had people in the streets, and the government called in Russia to help them get the people out of the streets. So, by and large, the focus needs to be on increase the supply of renewable energy, increase the demand. Then what happens to hydrocarbon is it goes, as they say, quietly into the night. Mm -hmm. And you can see this. There's a great, there's a great chart that I used in a presentation I made in like September, no, October, that shows the price of oil and then the a number of active drilling rigs. And this is happening during the beginning of the COVID affair. So drilling rigs are going along on, uh, in this, this is the United States at about 800-ish operating per day. COVID comes along, demand for oil craters, oil and gas craters, and with a lag of, of about, about two months or so, well, the, first the price crashes, oh, then with a lag of about two months, here comes the drilling rigs from around 800 to down below 200 oh. active mm -hmm. rigs. And it took more than nine months after the oil price started to to come back before the drilling rig started to come back up again. Now we're back up more or less where we were. But the important thing is, is that the signal that there isn't demand is powerful enough that that ends supply. Mm -hmm. And we need to really, really focus 
on doing that. Yeah. Is there a way to kind of empower people around this? I mean, you know, I think about this issue a lot with Zombified of like, how can we increase people's feeling of autonomy, not, you know, having them not feel like they're just trapped in a system that is not what they want or doing things just because they feel like they have to. I mean, you know, you talk about like going up to your land and, you know, I have a feeling that some of that has to do with like feeling like you're you know, not part of the system. Yeah, that totally. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, and wanting to figure out, like, I, I, I think a lot of it comes from a genuine desire to try to figure out how to, well, not just to be off the system, but I've thought about, you know, I, when I think about it, I'm like, well, I could make a solar power place or I could put, you know, Kingman's very windy. I've tried to figure out, could I put a windmill? Although windmills, you know, obviously I couldn't put one of those giant ones up myself. But, you know, I think there is a lot of curiosity, like, where mm-hmm. I, and I don't think I'm alone in this. I want to find ways to be more sustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, but I keep hitting this problem where I realize after every trip, the best thing I could do for the environment is stay home, right? Because I drive <laughs> all the way up there, I buy all the, you know, and so. Um, well, but it, it's also like, I mean, it sounds like what you're kind of trying to do is to play to explore like can I do this right it's not just like you're like oh I'm gonna actually figure out how to live off grid this weekend you're like experimenting you're trying to figure out is this viable and we don't really all have a space to play you got every, anyone can come up to my land it's just email <laughs> me that's fine I need the help <laughs> so, um, but yeah so how do we but then I always do go back to these sort of questions like, where do the batteries come from? Where do the solar powers come from? Yeah, solar, but, you know, and so. And who's making the decisions? Yeah. yeah. And how do I get involved in that? Because the, I, I was part of a conference a number of years ago where this question came up. What can we do as an individual? And one of the panelists said, well, what you can do that would really help a lot is buy half as much and use it twice as long. Okay, that's there's a certain amount of wisdom in that and then that would imply a decline of economic activity of about 75 percent at which point we have total collapse of the human civilization and we're going to have civil wars on now you don't have to worry about any of that because nobody well not nobody Mm -hmm. but very few people are going to do that and very few people are going to buy half as much and use it twice as long but what we're talking about is is how do we get ourselves, wean ourselves off of a system that is is this scheme that is incredibly interwoven in ways where you start pulling things out because, well, let's just see what happens when we do that. And, and uh-huh. you, you make a pretty mm-hmm. unstable system. Mm-hmm. Now, what I think is very doable um, is to begin with, if you live in Arizona – Use as much energy as you possibly can. Well, in the all the time? In the middle of the day. So, no. No, oh. Use energy wisely, but use as much as you can of the energy that you use. Use it in the middle of can the I, day. Can I ask you a question about that? Because I know with through SRP, I've got something where I pay more from like three to six. Yeah. But all the rest of the time from six till three the next day is the same price. I should actually still be prioritizing like, I guess sun up to three, basically. You should be, yeah. And the the three to six is that's the ramp that I'm talking about. Uh-huh. So this yeah. is when you're going up the neck of the duck. Okay. So um, so it'd be better to do things like laundry and wash dishes. Like anything you can do at or around noon is a really good idea. Interesting. Okay. Now, good to know. Electrify. 
if there's anything that you've got around your place that you could, you know, your barbecue grill, if you got one, something like that, whatever you, whatever you happen to have around your house, um, hot water heater. Oh, your, switch to electric instead of electrify. instead of gas. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Electrify. Now, I'm I'm also recognize there's going to be a role much longer than people feel comfortable with for natural gas here. So I'm not. I like cooking with gas. I know. Even as I heard that, I was was a little bummed. And I do that too. Just to be clear, I do too. So I'm not. Mm -hmm. I'm not pushing an anti-natural gas line here. But look at where you can where you can use electricity. If you can afford it, get an electric vehicle, and charge it during the day. Huh. A big conversation we're having around ASU right now is. If we end up in 10 years' time with 50% of the cars on campus running on electricity, are we going to charge them here? Um, If you are the power company and you are the one that has to speak duck, Uh the first one that has to speak duck, what are you going to do in order to um, encourage people to charge during the day? Uh-huh. Because if they all go home and charge at night, and we're running off of an energy source that mm-hmm. peaks in the middle of the day, something's got to fill that, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So there's there's things of this type where you just look at your look at your day to day life and and ask yourself, can I use more electricity because I'm using less of something else, and can I do more in the middle of the day? Mm-hmm. Then the second thing I think we absolutely have to do is is look at who is making these decisions. And in, in Arizona, whenever anybody asks me, what is the number one thing I can do? I say, study the candidates for the Arizona Corporation Commission. Oh, interesting. Have you heard of the Arizona Corporation Commission? I have, but I couldn't name a single candidate. Yeah, well, like. that the next election, you not, not only need to be able to name them, you need to be able to recite what it is they will do if they are elected. Interesting. Mm-hmm. All right. Because these are the people that in the first instance are making the decisions about how we run our, our utilities. And our utilities include natural gas and it includes electricity and the internet and water. Mm-hmm. All of these things, they're the ones that are responsible for that. They're the ones that are going to be making those decisions. The same with your local, the local community you live in. Who's responsible for the environment? Yeah, I don't know. Who isn't? Like you say in Tempe, who? So that's Braden Kay. What is Braden Kay's job? Braden Kay is the chief sustainability officer. So he's he's the one that kind of looks after that. For the the city? For the city of Tempe. There's other people. I should be careful because it's not just Braden. But Braden's the head of sustainability. And this is what he does. He's an ASU grad from the School of Sustainability, and he's passionate about it. Um, and he's asking the question all the time, how can Tempe do a better job? Mm-hmm. And huh. he's got climate as one of his issues. Recycling is one of his issues. Now, is he elected or is he appointed? In the case of Braden, he's appointed. Okay. Um, but, um, of course, that gets you then to the city council and okay. the mayor and how those decisions get made. Interesting. 
Um, Same is true for the legislature. They have an important role to play. So elected officials matter. And this gets back to the point I was making earlier about the importance of local decision-making and local capacity to make these decisions. So in, in the past, if you'd gone back 30 years ago, 40 years ago, it wasn't really that big a deal for a local official with respect to, say, electricity because you had the big utilities and you had, you had the regulatory commission and if you wanted electricity, you connected to the line. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that was simple. <laughs> Instrumental conversion. Sure. Uh, but now we're talking about adopting to something else. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I, w- I, have to, I have to ask a little bit more about this, like, whole, like, living off-grid or trying to live off-grid mm-hmm. thing. That's like, I mean, I'm going to call it recreational survivalism. Sure. Right? It's like, mm-hmm. I want to see can i make it out there quote unquote by myself where maybe you're not actually by yourself but you know you are at least for some period of time trying to survive without being plugged in to the system and you know if i think about like you know you and like my other friends who are kind of you know into this i'm i'm definitely into like you know the prepping part of things not as much the recreational survivalism like i don't go out to like the middle of nowhere with uh, you're missing out (laughs) (laughs) but but, you know but there is i think there is this element of like curiosity and playfulness around it and you know and maybe it is also a bit of a luxury, right? It's like, oh, you know, yeah. we can afford I mean, the gas not, to go yeah, out. Right? And the land, first of all. Yeah. And then, but then also, yeah, the gas, it's expensive to, yeah. to go up there. Yeah. So, yeah. Or oh. like in my case, I have so many mason jars. I just keep buying mason jars sure. and filling them with things, um, which, you know, <laughs> is probably not really necessary. Like they'd be just fine in their plastic containers, but I like the aesthetic so much. So I'm buying all these mason jars. Um, so, so anyway, the question is like, is there is there some role for like empowering people, you know, giving them some sense of autonomy by allowing them to, you know, play and explore around like how to survive without being tapped into all of the systems and the schemes? And can that help us build some resilience if we can? Well, I think in the case of energy, the answer is yes, because now it's entirely possible to put solar panels on your roof to put into your home some kind of an installation batteries Um, and it's entirely possible to lead a comfortable life running entirely off of electricity in your home Um, you'll need you'll need a pretty substantial solar array or a pretty small house if you're going to run your air conditioner and if you're going to run your electric vehicle. I don't know of anybody in the Phoenix area that's got an array big enough that they can air condition and charge their electric vehicle Mm -hmm. completely off-grid. But you can conceive of that, especially Mm -hmm. if you're you had a small car and weren't charging up to run 500 miles and it didn't take a lot or, of... Or charging at work. Well, I guess then we're not really charging Then you're not off-grid Yeah. Oh, you're right. You're right. Um, thought I had But yes, I think, I, think, I, think you can, I think you can imagine doing that. Yes, absolutely. Now, um, and I think that that can be a good thing for people that have the resources to do it. And I think it is a good thing. If nothing else, it's 
having a critical mass of people who do things like that is very instructive for the rest of the community to understand where they might want to position themselves. They might not want to go completely off-grid, mm-hmm. they may, but they may want to do more than what they do. So I, I think that there's absolutely a space for that, and I think there's good things you can do. Now, in terms of survivability, you know, the thing that, that goes through my mind is we've got, what, almost five and a half million people living in this valley and they can't survive for more than two weeks without mm-hmm. assistance coming from the outside. Mm-hmm. And if you're really in a societal collapse situation, you're going to have to be able to survive wherever you are till the bulk of those people are gone. Well, that's dark. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> we just got really apocalyptic. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just being realistic. If you're really talking about societal, this goes back to the scheme again. I mean, we, we just are so utterly and completely dependent on that scheme. And, you know, I've, I've thought about this in my ancestral home. I, I own my grandmother's um, Farm place, not the, all the land. She sold off the land, but just is the that farm. here in Arizona? No, that's in South Dakota. Okay, and um, you know we've talked about from time to time within my family. If it really went south, uh-huh. would we try to tough it out in the Arizona summers, or would you try to tough it out in the South Dakota winters? And, and then, what does it mean to tough it out? And you know. There's part of it is if you've done all this stuff to survive, you've got to outlive live the guys with the guns. Mm. So you've got to you've got to at least survive as long as they've longer than they've got bullets. So so what are you deciding, Arizona or South oh, Dakota? If, if it ever got to that, it's got to be South Dakota, and we're better say. set up there. To, well, you've got to get there, right? You've got to get there. Well, that's part of the here. problem too. There's yeah. a long ways yeah. from here so. to there, and that's a lot of gasoline and a lot of country if, to go yeah, through. If there's gas, if you can, yeah, yeah you can exactly. even get gas. So the best thing to do is don't get to society <laughs> <laughs> and, and see if we can't kind of figure out ways to bridge from where we are to something that is more sustainable. But I think energy is is got to be one of the linchpins mm-hmm. of all of that. Can, um, can, I, can I ask a very practical sort of sure. question? I always have people come by my house offering to put in solar panels up front. Is that like I've, – but I've heard some people are like, no, that's totally a scam. It's better to put them in yourself. Do you have any opinion on – whether it's if I were to say, you know what, I do want to put solar panels on, like, well, I I know people who have done both. Uh-huh. Um, the people who put them in completely themselves um, that I know of that have been successful at it are electrical engineers. Okay, and they really really know what they're doing. Okay, <laughs> all right, um, and they 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 can talk to the power company because a, a lot of this depends on what. You know, if you're going to hook up in the normal way to the grid, then the, the, the power company has to come out and agree that what you've done works. works sure, sure. And they're, they're prepared to, to connect you up. Um, I've also talked to many people who have had a good, reputable company come out and put them in. And there are good, reputable companies in this valley that will come in and they'll – They'll do a good job. Of so how, how would somebody go about finding a good, reputable company, I guess, would be? Um, well, we can talk offline. Um, oh, okay. I just wasn't sure if there was a general way. There, you know what there I mean? There is a group called ARASIA, um, Arizona Solar Energy Industry Association. 
And the head of Erisia is a woman by the name of Autumn Johnson. Uh-huh. And um, I would start with Autumn and just say, okay, Autumn, tell me, tell me what the deal is in Arizona. And, and can you point me in the direction of getting the kind of information I'm, I'm going to okay. if, if you're starting from absolute zero. Now, the other thing you can do is talk to people who've already done it, obviously. And, and get oh, some, that's a good idea. Just go to the neighbors that have solar panels yeah, and say if they like. I, I think hanging around ASU, for example, you'll, you'll find a lot of faculty members have, have put them in and will be able to tell you about it. But if you want to start with absolute zero base. Sure. Well, on. yeah, because I was also trying to think, as we think about listeners, right? Listeners who maybe are not right here on campus. Right. Don't have... Absolutely. Like, would they? So, this idea of sort of looking up, or are most states generally going to have some sort of solar energy? They will. They commission will. Ar- Arisia is part of the U.S. Solar Energy Industry Association. Okay, so and they could just go online and sort of look that up. They and can. start there. And, okay. and I and and Autumn is great. She's she's um, been involved in energy in in Arizona in the Southwest for a long time, and would would. If you're listening, I, I'm, I'm depending on you now. <laughs> She'd be happy to talk to you. All right, <laughs> sounds good. <laughs> so, uh, so I have to ask this question because we're sure. kind of we're getting close to the end, and we always have to ask this question about what is the zombie apocalypse scenario for being zombified by the scheme. Like if we take how we're zombified by the scheme and we just turn it up. So like we're more zombified by the scheme. Like when does it turn into a zombie apocalypse and what does that look like? Yeah. Yeah. I think we're getting, we're getting on the cusp of it. Um, And I think it's when we say to ourselves that the scheme is so complicated that we human beings just no longer can aspire to being able to understand it. And we're going to turn it over to AI. Mm. And we're just going to progressively check out because AI is going to look after all of this. And um, even without artificial general intelligence, and of course that is the vision of artificial general intelligence, is that, mm-hmm. come on guys, they, they, they take over, right? You know that. Um, even without AGI, the, the way in which big data is used and the way in which we're, we're relying on algorithms more and more to guide decision-making, we're headed in that direction. Now, if we're going to avoid that, in my opinion, and this is, in my view, the hard part is you got to simplify because we've built already built something that's too complicated for even our best and brightest to really understand in the level to the level of detail that you really would like them to understand, and that means we got to figure out ways to to frankly break down the density of these networks and start peeling them apart a little bit and be be more granular locally. Mm-hmm. And allow much more of that kind of granular behavior to happen locally. Well, and you know, having local regulation is sort of one of the principles of how you effectively manage commons from you know Eleanor Ostrom's work. So absolutely, yeah. Now the problem with that is we've got to then think about our economic 
system, and in particular our, the way in which we measure what we think is economically desirable. Because let's face it, the the reason we have these behemoths we talked about earlier, the reason we have this complexity and the density of this networking is because financially, simplistically financially, it's uh, more cost-effective. If you can get by without that, if you can get rid of a piece of redundancy, uh, and you can get by at least as long as you're sitting in the chair that's responsible for that, then you've saved money, mm -hmm. right? And as long as that is a substantial driver of our metrics, then it's tough to, mm -hmm. because what I'm describing is in increasing redundancy, mm -hmm. creating a different kind of redundancy mm -hmm. that has to do with networks. And now a certain amount of that is going to happen in the energy system anyway. Um, what's going on in the Ukraine is is got to be terrifying um, with this whole business about drones that we talked about. Um, so you've got to you've got to be thinking about how do I build a system where a $200,000 drone can't destroy a $50 million power plant. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that feels to me like one of the things you want to look at then is, is how do you make your system more distributed? In the first instance, you want to keep them things as far away from you as you can, but, um, mm -hmm. but alternatively you also want to, be thinking about a system that's much more distributed than what we have now. Right, right. Yeah. So how how would our day-to-day -day lives be good in a way if we make these transitions? Like is it, you know, can we can we envision a world where, you know, it's a, it's a more fulfilling life because we're we've simplified, we have more local, you know, regulation and participation in our systems. And like, you know, is there a vision for it, you know, being a, a future that feels like an opportunity rather than just a lot of sacrifice? Yeah. In the first instance, most of what I've said in this discussion is about a preventing an apocalypse of some mm -hmm. sort, um, some sort of a catastrophic collapse. And of course that, in my opinion, is worth avoid, avoiding mm -hmm. at all costs or at most costs. Um, I think a world that is more local and more relational, because Keep in mind the world that I've been describing with this dense network of interactions is a very transactional world. Mm -hmm. um, I have no idea who worked <laughs> right. on my pen. Exactly mm -hmm. no yeah. idea. Not one single person. I use this pen a lot. I like it a lot. I would thank <laughs> whoever did something about it if I knew who they were, but I have no idea. Not a single one. That is, when you think about it, just entirely too transactional. Um, mm -hmm. I think a more distributed world has a much better chance of being much more relational. Um, when I was living in Belgium, I lived in a, in a Fleming community um, and they had a local bakery and, you know, you mm -hmm. had a local butcher shop and you go in, you get to know these people, you chat with them. Mm -hmm. They tell you, oh, you know, if you like this, then what about this? And, oh, we could make that for you. Mm -hmm. um, 
it doesn't happen at your local supermarket. No. Yeah. I'm, I'm not disparaging supermarkets because they have an important role to play. But at the same time, it is a transaction. And they literally talk about it as a transaction. You even even getting you to go through the self-service check line because mm-hmm. it's just a transaction. <laughs> really? Right. Um, I, I think that there, there was a real opportunity for people to feel more part of a community. Mm-hmm. And, and in the case of something like a bakery, for example, take a certain amount of joy in the skill of those people that are doing that kind of work. Um, yeah. And to me, I think that that creates an opportunity for a much more enriched day-to-day life than racing from one place to another, sticking your credit card in the machine because mm-hmm. that's what you do now. Yeah. You just put it in. Now, I think what we really should be aspiring for is a certain kind of a hybrid mm-hmm. where there are certain things. I don't, I don't like boutique mining for example what is boutique mining that means you have a bunch of kids in the central african republic digging holes in the ground for cobalt nodules okay Mm -hmm. why is it called boutique mining because these are little holes in the ground oh okay okay one one or two kids can fit in and dig the the stuff out um talk about a euphemism like kids digging in the ground calling it boutique mining (laughs) it's um so there are certain activities that I think we, we they're going to have a certain scale to them. They require certain competencies, and you're going to want that. But I think there's a lot that doesn't have to be like that. And, um, yeah, I would, mm-hmm. I would say we can aspire to get there. Now, the alternative is, I think, what I was describing earlier, and that is it gets so complicated that the next thing you know, the machines have to do mm-hmm. the transactions mm-hmm. the machines are literally taking that over and um it becomes more and more impersonal yeah and you get more and more distant mm-hmm. from understanding how this scheme actually works yeah i mean the, the busier people are the more they're running from one place to the other the the more pressure there is to just make things as efficient as possible which kind of takes that human element out of it yeah it does and um of course a lot of this that you're describing is again economic philosophy and it's driven by the idea that you know you should you should uh, extract financially as much out of a system as you can Yeah. Well, there's an alternative philosophy, which is that we should be managing risk effectively. And in order to do that, we actually need to have relationships with other humans where we care about each other. <laughs> well, I, I certainly agree with that. The, the challenges around risk, and, and this has really showed up in the Texas situation with, that I was describing earlier, is it's very hard to show financially what you do about rare events that come unpredictably but have catastrophic Mm -hmm. consequences. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to build those into any kind of a financial model that anybody would recognize. And there's a tendency, if you can't model it, to do one of two things. Either ignore it or just don't go anywhere near it. Mm -hmm. And of course, in the case of something as important as an electric system, you got to have one. 
and by and large, they just, you know, that's a risk we're going to take. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and I mean, the the whole idea that you know you can have these events that you know you basically you can't insure against because you don't have a way of plugging them into an actuarial table and figuring out how much insurance should cost because they're so unpredictable so rare and potentially so catastrophic catastrophic. yeah um so you know well what kinds of systems are possible in those cases and you know if we look at how small-scale societies do it they have these relationships where they you know basically do what we call limited risk pooling so it's like you know, we agree if, you know, you are in a situation where you're totally below your threshold for what you need to survive, I'll help you and vice versa. And, you know, that's what has worked for small scale societies since the beginning of time. And so maybe we can figure out how to adapt some of those systems for these kinds of disasters that are so unpredictable and catastrophic. Well, I think I think that there's an opportunity to, to, to revisit some of that. The the the. In fact, the first insurance company was basically that. Lloyd's of London were, let's get together and we'll pool and, uh-huh. and um, we'll be better off if we did that. The, the challenge, as I've tried to think through this through, is the, the model of helping your neighbor, how does that scale? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason we have what we do is that the only way people could figure out to scale it is is sort of insurance and then you get to mm. actuarial that requires models mm. models can only do about so much especially when you don't have supercomputers behind you yeah there, there's some other models though like the whole like sister cities program that yeah. it was not originally about pooling risk it was about cultural exchange and you know students going back and forth for education but then when a disaster hits um those sister cities end up helping each other because they have this relationship so it it wasn't even built in you know as like one of the features of it but it just came about that um because this relationship was there people felt interdependent probably and and wanted to help well and i think this is really an important example of what i was trying the point i was trying to make earlier about relationship versus transaction i think people surprise themselves what they're willing to do when a relationship is involved mm-hmm. versus when it's nothing but a transaction. <laughs> yeah. And that's, to me, the, the tipping point that we're, we've, we've gone past and we've got to try to figure out how to get back mm. again. And that is we've allowed society, the scheme, in the larger sense of it, to become so transactional that the ability for people to, to do good relationally is very limited in, this, in the scheme, in the, the larger scheme. Mm-hmm. And somehow, and that's why I was saying what I was earlier about, about decomplexifying, it, you know, I think getting back to where relationship matters, yeah. to, the whole, to the overall scheme where relationships matter, seems to me a worthwhile thing to try to do. Yeah, so how do we get ourselves so that we're not as zombified by the transactional scheme and instead zombified by our relationships with the people who we care about? And and that's the way we were designed in the first place, in my opinion, is to be very relational. Yeah. And we work better under those circumstances. And when I'm thinking about it with power, though, you know, it's like, sure, I could theoretically ask the person at the supermarket, what do you recommend? I don't know. 
wouldn't know where to start to ask the person who brings my electrons, right? Because they're just pumped through a wire and then there's a, but the money is taken out of my account. You know, like I don't know that I've probably since the day I've set it up, I've never talked to a person yeah. from SRP. Um, well, and I, they would be happy to talk with you. They'd be happy to talk, come here and talk with you, I think. Um, that'd be kind of fun. I, I have had the pleasure of getting to know uh, quite a number of people at both SRP and APS, and they genuinely are concerned about these yeah. things. I mean, genuinely concerned about these things. And what, what do you do that fits within a parameter space and for me, the, the parameter space I use when I think about and transform the energy system is based around four basic norms, one of which is, is um, reliability, another one is cost, another one is equity and justice, and another one is, is carbon emissions. And as we're transforming the energy system, in my opinion, you have to keep all four in mind all the time. You can't just simply say, I'm going to focus on this one, and I'm going to get a system based on focusing that, and it's going to be okay, because it isn't. You got to deal with all of them at the same time. Well, it's, it turns out that's hard, because not every situation you find yourself in lends itself to an emphasis on, on just one. Mm-hmm. You typically have to do more, all of them. Um, but these are the kind of conversations that, that I can tell you that the utilities are are concerned about. How do how does this happen? Um, yeah, well, that's reassuring. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but, but it but it requires. This is something else. I think that this gets back to the whole notion again of relational versus transactional. This gets back to well, how do you have these conversations? How do you come to know? Not a phone number, and and a person who may identify themselves by their first name, but a real person that you sat yeah. at the table with mm-hmm. and you chatted about. Well, what do you people think about this? Right. Yeah, and um, in a more distributed system, in a more relationship-oriented system, we would do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even with the electric thing, I was thinking for a long time I resisted switching to that off-peak thing, and I'd never even heard until now the idea that it's like, oh, this actually helps the environment to to be Mm -hmm. switching this. So because I had a totally had a transaction, I was like trying to think. I was only ever thinking of it in terms of my bill, right? Right. So Mm -hmm. that is it's interesting, right? When you when you consume, especially in the Southwest where we have so much solar energy, when you consume is important. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Well, this was amazing, Gary. Thank you so much for sharing your brains with us, and also I think your your heart today. (laughs) I really appreciate that. (laughs) Well, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for a very engaging conversation and some great questions. It was electrifying. (laughs) (laughs) That that would be a good place to call it a wrap. (laughs) And if the whole world says that we're crazy, we don't need nobody anyhow. But if you don't want to fall in love, you better tell me right now. And if the Crazy. We can burn this motherfucker
Zombified is a production of Arizona State University and Zombified Media. And we would like to thank everyone who has provided us with the resources we need for the energy required to make today's episode. And the brains. And the brains, that's right. A valuable resource. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Including the uh, Department of Psychology at Arizona State University. The Interdisciplinary Cooperation Initiative and President's Office at ASU. The Lincoln Center for Applied Ethics. All the brains that help make this podcast, including Tal Rom, who does our awesome sound. Thank you, Tal. Yes, and Neil, who makes all our illustrations. Yeah, Neil Smith, you're the bomb. We love your illustrations. Oh, I didn't even say his last name. I just didn't like now. At this point, you guys should all know Neil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then uh, we've also got our song, which I get questions about all the time. It's like, what's that song? I'm like, it's, it's called Psychological. It's by Lemmy. You can go on Spotify and listen to it. There you because go. if you haven't yet been zombified by it, you just wait until you listen to the whole thing. It's a good song. Yeah. It's a really good song. Yeah. So and uh, and of course the Z team who does everything from media outreach to transcriptions to all they've just provide so much energy. Yes. yes. We love you Z team. Yes. Thank you for being so amazing. They're part they're, they're a big part of our scheme, our whole scheme. They are. Yes, so. our uh, our distributed brain brains. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so and our listeners can Continue to be a part of our distributed brain by uh, yeah by engaging what? with us on all sorts of platforms on Twitter on Instagram. Um, you can find us as Zombified Media across all the platforms. Um, Yellow Bar and Wordly and Weekly. I don't Club even know what you're talking about right now. I'm just going to try to some of the future ones oh, they haven't invented okay. yet. Okay, all so. right. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want kind of a one-stop shop to go to all the places, you can go to zombified.org or zombifiedmedia.org and that will introduce you to our whole broader scheme. Uh, oh, right. And you can also buy things transactionally. That's true. Without shop. You don't have to talk to us. You That's can just right. buy a t-shirt and it's a completely hands-free, human interaction-free process That's right. where the money will come from your credit card and the t-shirt will magically arrive at your house and you don't even have to talk to the person who delivers it. <laughs> That's right. So, so many options. Yes, yes. Um, and you can also support us if you want um, with a financial transaction on Patreon. That's another, you know, sure. inhuman so. way of supporting us if you want. Or but you can just find us and give us money. Just like, right? <laughs> Can they do that? Or are they not allowed to do that? I don't I, I don't <clears throat> Do we I need to know. run that by <coughs> ASU? <laughs> Maybe a thing where you can't. I take that back. I don't know if I can actually ask people to give me money on the street. Yeah. Oh. You you can find um Dave and I on Twitter and Instagram too. I'm just Athena Ectipus on on both. I'm also you're also inactive. a activist. Yeah, just just go with that because I mean I don't I deleted <laughs> both of those. So you deleted your Instagram? I didn't delete the account. I just don't have the app on my phone anymore because I oh. don't. But I might I might go back and. But we were like interacting on Instagram just last week. Well, remember our last interaction was like it turns out I'm spending an hour a day on Instagram. I think I told you this, oh. and then I was like, that's an hour a day I shouldn't be spending. I see. On so Instagram. you deleted Instagram. I deleted Instagram. That was my last. So I've missed all. Have you done cool Instagram stuff? Oh my gosh, there's so much cool stuff on my Instagram. Oh, I've missed no, it. not 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 really. Just some, well, just some pictures and things. Well, you guys should all go, and then you guys should find me on the street, and you should pass me a note that says what's on Athena's Instagram. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, um, thank you, Dave, and thank you all for listening to Zombified, your source for fresh brains. Crazy, but it seems so logical. I can't deny that there is something.
Something supernatural with you